Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800-267-9371 or online at nexa.com. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello and welcome to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. I'm Jason Taché, a legal affairs writer at the Journal. Today we're talking about legal academic publishing. The phrase itself can symbolize the most staid and stuffy aspects of legal education. In the U.S., law reviews date back to the mid-19th century, and except for the advent of blue book citations and online publishing, I'm hard-pressed to think of this space as ever being innovative. But then came along MIT. This spring, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology announced the MIT Computational Law Report, which, according to its website, is an agile new media online publication that explores the ways that law and legal processes can be reimagined and engineered as computational systems. To help me make sense of what MIT is trying to do, I have the editor-in-chief of the MIT Computational Law Report, Brian Wilson, joining me today. Brian, thank you for being with me. Now, I've got to start off in what's got to be the most fundamental question here. Uh, MIT doesn't have a law school. So what in earth is it trying to do launching a law journal? That's a question that we get all of the time. And it's uh, one of my favorite questions to answer, I think. One of the, the utilities to reframing the way that law and legal publishing, the way that it's been done historically, one of the benefits to doing that at MIT is that there actually isn't a law school. So we actually have free reign to kind of reimagine law and legal publishing in whatever way that we want. And so one of the things that we're doing to that end is we're starting conversations among all of the different players that are in this kind of connected ecosystem of effectively making the law happen. And so what that means is we get to connect not only with uh, you know the technologists and the people at MIT who are doing really interesting things on the on the data side and on the kind of like social sciences side of things. But we also get to connect with people at Harvard Law School, people at Suffolk Law School, people at all of these law schools in the United States, people at law schools around Europe. And we get to have these more holistic conversations about how we can design these systems that really cross so many disciplines. We get to have conversations about how we can expand the conversation to be more inclusive of all these different voices that, and, and the stakeholders that really have to interface with the legal system on a, on a daily basis. And so it's a lot of fun because, you know, people haven't been doing that very much in the law, but MIT has been doing that for a long time, uh, kind of getting people from different disciplines together coming up with ways to adopt new technologies and to figure out how to kind of like future-proof whatever some domain is looking like. And then, you know, the fact that law is a social science kind of has this connotation that, well, if it's a social science, we ought to start measuring it in the ways that you, you know, you do with the scientific method. We, We ought to start imagining law as more of a scientific endeavor. And so from that standpoint, it's, it's really fun. And so 
one of the main infrastructure pieces of a law review or, or a law journal is legal faculty to be able to see whether or not potential publications are are valid and and worth printing, but also you know the bevy of site checking law students that make the whole legal academic publishing world go around. So I'm curious, without a law school and uh, that army of law students, how is this project going to operate? Yeah, so the way that we've been operating so far is uh, we, we've kind of been viewing this first release as a little bit of uh, kind of like a beta launch or like figuring out what the uh, the mechanics of it will be um, so that we can optimize what we're doing for what is demanded by, you know, the the integration of, you know, new computer science techniques, new design techniques with the way that the legal system functions. And so, you know, we, we don't really see that uh, lack of having faculty as a, uh, as a downside, because what we've been able to do is we've been able to set up an editorial board that has people from, you know, three or four different continents in a number of different backgrounds doing kind of the editorial functions in a way that allows it to be cross-disciplinary and um, useful to both sides of this, the legal and the non-legal. And so, you know, some of our editorial board are, you know, getting PhDs in computer science. Um, some of them are designers. Some of them are computer scientists. Some of them are legal academics. And so we, we really wanted to cover our bases there. And following on that, we've done kind of the same thing with peer reviewers. Uh, we, what we do is we look at the articles that we have coming in, and then we try and identify people who would be helpful to peer review these things that have domain expertise in these areas. So if, for example, there's something, there's an article that has privacy considerations with new technology, we'll, we'll send it out to a few peer reviewers on the legal side, we'll send it out to a few peer reviewers who maybe specialize in privacy. But we'll also send it out to people that are connected to more of the computer science aspects of that to make sure that it's actually balanced on both sides. And so in that way, I think, uh, you know, we're doing this in a little bit, uh, I, I would say, a, a positively innovative way. Um, we had an article that we're going through right now before the, the first release comes out um, that looks at. Uh, an idea of quantum law, and so I had to I had to reach out to one of my buddies who's a who's getting his PhD in physics to make sure that all of the physics aspects of it lined up with the legal aspects of it. And so it's 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 pretty fun because we it gives me an excuse to reach out to people who are doing really interesting things, and I think it, it's going to be a way to catalyze interest in a space that's traditionally been very siloed. And so you mentioned that this new journal is going to be peer-reviewed, which differentiates itself from traditional legal academic publishing. But I, I wonder, how does this new publication fit into the existing world of academic legal publishing? So that's a kind of a, another point of pride that we have with this publication. Really, when we when we kind of started with the idea of it, it was like, if we're starting from scratch and we, we had the opportunity to design a legal publication that was, you know, optimally useful, optimally insightful, and optimally accessible, what would that look like? And so 
we were like, okay, well, it's not just going to be law review articles because there's very few people who actually read law review articles. Um, it's, it's also going to include shorter, shorter kind of like blog post length posts. And it's also going to have, you know, a bunch of rich media pieces. So we've got a lot of podcasts. We've got, we've got some video lectures. We've got some graphics and information about those graphics. Um, and then we also have a section for reproducible data science, reproducible legal software applications. And, you know, if you, if you want to get into some of the uh, more computer science oriented stuff, we've got a place where you can actually go in and look at the data that is being produced by the legal system or in the legal system. Or maybe you want to learn how to build an app, so you, you go in and look at this this uh, repo that we'll host, and you have a new way to do that. We definitely see ourselves as inclusive of you know what traditional legal academia has been, because we're we we've got some beefier articles that you know have in the hundreds of citations, but we've also got things that no law review has ever really tried before. And I think that's uh, that's something that's pretty exciting to be at the forefront of. So you just mentioned something that I wanted to make sure we talked about. You said that people don't really read law review articles, and, and that does seem to be the case. Very few are cited to in, in large proportion, even within the academy itself. So I get that you're coming at this from a different perspective. You're including different types of information and packaging it in different ways. You mentioned the use of infographics. But to what degree do you worry that you're actually just making a even more niche publication? Because now, on top of being keen on legal issues, you need to understand how a GitHub repository works. You need to understand how R works to be able to make sense of some of this data. Like, is there any concern that this approach will actually kind of shrink the audience that would otherwise be interested in some of your publications? There definitely is that concern. And one of the things that we've been doing to try and uh, be mindful of that is we're trying to give it the look and feel of something like you know, a 538 or a New York Times where it's, you know, there is the data there, like with 538, you can click into an article, you can look at this really great infographic, and then you can actually like navigate to 538's GitHub repository and play around with the data there. And so I think, you know, to the extent that people think about 538, it's not really like, oh, this is some thing that's divided or made more niche what people are doing, but it's something that we're trying to include something that's there for everybody that everybody can take away from it. So, you know, if you're a legal person and you want to gain more of a tech expertise, there's everything's kind of written at a general level for the most part. And then there, there are those like kind of deeper aspects that you can get to if you want to. So it's kind of, uh, we've taken some pride in like the modular sort of approach where we really believe in harmonizing the business, legal, and technical aspects of the law in a way that makes it more accessible to people from, you know, any different background. So we've talked a lot about the uh, various pieces that are going to go into this publication. Um, and I, I'm curious about the title itself, um, the computational law report. Right? Does using the term computational law imply a certain worldview behind this publication? That's a good question. We we usually, I would say, we usually get questions about, you know, what is computational law and what does that mean? 
And I think there is a certain worldview kind of feel to it. Like, uh, but I think the, the worldview feel to it is like the same that's happened to like the finance industry. And it's not so much that we see this as like the, you know, ultimate, like everything needs to be computational law report. We see this as the, you know, some things could really benefit from being computational law report. And some things, you know, some things could just benefit from better design or an approach to design that maybe has some principles that developers use and that these people from these different disciplines use. And so, you know, maybe computational law is kind of, uh, it could be that that is in itself a bit narrow, but I think what we stand for and what we're really pushing for is a reevaluation, a reimagination, and kind of like a re-engineering of the law as a computational system. And so it's not that, you know, every law needs to be in some GitHub repository that everybody should have access to. It's that if we start thinking about the law as something that should be computational, that can be computational, then we're going to get to better outcomes. One of the things that jumped out to me when I was watching the launch video by your colleague Deza Greenwood this past spring was that he talked about the idea of curating a list of open challenges for computational law. What does this mean and what do you anticipate this looking like? So with the launch of the publication right now, one of the things, one of the challenges that we have is a challenge for automated legal entities, automated and autonomous legal entities. It's and what the goal with the challenges is, is we want to look at something that people in the space are dealing with. We want to challenge people to make their best shot at building something around that. And then we want to see what building something around that teaches us about this, you know, these emerging technologies that are coming out quicker and quicker and that law has traditionally taken a really long time to respond to. So the goal is to kind of use the challenges as a way to build the feedback loop so that, you know, there aren't these gaps between new technologies that come out and new regulations that adapt to them. And so with the automated autonomous legal entities challenge, one of the goals that we had for it was to see what it would take to just automate the formation and the life cycle of just something like an LLC. And what does that teach us? And so what we did there was we got some people together, we kind of created a working group, and then we went through all of the steps of like automating from start to finish in one place where you can kind of like log in and see a dashboard, what it would look like to form something, uh, to form an LLC. And I think we, we wound up settling with a Massachusetts LLC just because they had a really good API for plugging into their data. But, uh, you know, the the longer term implications of this are are starting to become more apparent with um, the rise of uh, like Vermont and their blockchain based limited liability company. You know, Wyoming's got a series LLC law that allows you to have like a thousand nested autonomous legal entities registered and kind of working in these ways that nobody has really done before because there, there hasn't been that computational infrastructure there to, to programmatically set up LLCs. And then uh, another one that is getting some attention now is uh, Delaware with um, Open Law's got a, a project there called the LAO, which is like a limited liability um, wrapper around a DAO 
um, that they're going to use for fundraising. And so there, there are a lot the of DAO being a distributed automated autonomous organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Organization. Yep. And, and so it's, it's, it's like looking at these, at these newfangled business entities that computer scientists are developing on their own that, uh, you know, uh, mechanism designers and that all these people who are not strictly legal people are developing and saying, Hey, you know, there's, there's a role for law to be played here. How do we map the legal personality attributes of like a traditional, like C corp or an LLC? How do we map those to this new space of, you know, something that's completely technologically enabled and, you know, what rails or what safeguards do we need to put in place and then there's also, too, the question of, you know, what ways do these technologies do things better so that we can make it so that, you know, having a, one of these new legal entities is as efficient as it can be while still balancing that with the, the trust that is needed to, you know, create this limitation of liability that shields the people who are playing around in it. More with Brian Wilson in a second. But first, a message from our sponsors. If you're missing calls, appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualify leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-267-9371 or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Hello, I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, the host of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast. Starting in January, Asked and Answered will be making some changes to more deeply explore lawyers' experiences with unusual and sometimes challenging or even humorous situations practicing law. Our first episode with a new format launches January 27th, And it's about what it's like when your client shows up with a camera crew, ready to tell their stories on cable TV or Netflix. We have three episodes planned, so let us know what you think. If you like what you hear, we'll keep going. You can weigh in on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app, or by letting us know directly on Twitter at ABA Journal, or my own handle at SFW70, Roman numeral 2. And we're back, speaking with Brian Wilson, who is the editor-in-chief of the new MIT Computational Law Report, a new type of academic legal publication. So I want to take a step back from the publication for a second and talk about you. You have a really interesting background after going to law school. You worked in the startup space. You started a legal hackers chapter back in your hometown. You're now in publishing all of this kind of around the concept of technology in the legal system. And I was curious, like, where does your conviction for this work come from? That's a really good question. I think uh, my background is unique for, uh, I would say, people, at, especially at MIT. There, there aren't many lawyers uh, who are just kind of like hanging around working on stuff. But uh, the, the desire that I've had kind of uh, really since I've like found my spark I would say as a as a undergraduate was like looking at the way that culture was impacted by technology. So when I was in I think it was like my sophomore year of college I was at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater 
And I, I became interested in this through the lens of American studies. And so it was like, okay, how, how do these technological innovations change the way that people interact with one another? And, you know, in looking at that, I, I kind of got to a point where I was like, wow, you know, if we start designing for different outcomes, you know, we can use technology to facilitate, you know, better infrastructure, better, you know, legal outcomes, uh, all these, all these different things. And I, I actually didn't choose like to go to law school based on, you know, wanting to be a lawyer or wanting to do the law. I chose the law school because I liked the analytical types of thinking. I liked the, uh, you know, the different ways that you get to interface with policy and um, like communities that are building things. And I thought, I saw that as something that was, that was particularly valuable. And so I, I think the origin of it is definitely like, okay, let's figure out how we can use technology in a positive way instead of having it be used in, in like the, the negative way, like, you know, something like the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has kind of like been weaponized over the years to do. And, and so it's like, okay, you know, we have, you know, lawyers aren't necessarily the greatest at technology, but in order to have, you know, something that works for everybody, we need and, and, and makes use of these new technologies and helps society operate in a, you know, more functional way where there's really going to have to be that connection between law and technology. And so, you know, I, I, I think my work after law school, like doing stuff with the ABA Center for Innovation, doing stuff in the startup space, that definitely helped me get to more of the nuts and bolts of how to do that. But with this role at the computational law report, I, I get more of a chance to like use the connections that I've built up over the years and like the the knowledge that I've built up over the years as a way to spotlight, you know, the cool things that are happening and, and these cool changes that are making the positive outcomes that I was describing. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a roundabout way of getting there, but it's uh, one that I think is, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I could have taken any other path to get here. So to wrap up today, the other thing that makes you stand out to a certain degree is that you hail from Kansas City. And the legal tech world seems to be very coastal in its nature, whether because that's where tech has been housed or that's where you tend to find lawyers in California, D.C. and New York. I'm curious, you know, hailing from the Midwest, if there are any things that you think that the coastal legal tech world uh, can learn uh, from your neck of the woods. I think so. Well, when you start framing the problem of, you know, we, we need better access to justice, we need, you know, more trustworthy transactions, you know, these aren't all like access to justice isn't limited to the, you know, the Northeast or Silicon Valley. And so I think having a way to, in terms of like, uh, I, I, I've been auditing a a class at MIT this fall, and it's on creating revolutionary ventures. And the idea is like, you know, how do you how do you create something that's revolutionary? And um, there there are people from the business school there. There are people from you know all over the place there. And one of the new kind of concepts that I've been introduced to is this idea, this kind of like business concept of um, it's like total um, applicable market or, or total acquirable market or something like that. They always abbreviate it as TAM though. And, and so when you, when you look at legal tech, you know, the, the TAM for that is, you know, it's not 
all people who are in the East Coast or in these elite places. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be people from all over. Um, and so in order to design something that works for people from all over, you, you've got to talk to those people. You've got to have, you got to have roots in those different places. Because I think some of the areas where computational law can be most useful is actually, you know, in places that are building from the ground up. So some of these places that might have traditionally been like very incredibly underprivileged they now have the opportunity to do things that nobody else has been able to do. And I think there's definitely been a trend in the, in the space of like crypto and blockchain where you're seeing, you know, some of the biggest players, they're, they're not like the United States or China, like the U S and China have only been getting around to this stuff relatively recently. But you look at places like Estonia and Malta and some of these places that, you know, have the ability to kind of like, they're small enough that they can implement changes as quickly as they would like. And so it's, it's really kind of, uh, I, I think there's a tremendous value in, you know, being from a, uh, you know, a different background. And I think, uh, you know, to the extent that we can, you know, include a bunch of voices from a, a lot of different backgrounds, that's one of the things that we're really striving to do with, um, with everything that we're, um, you know, putting out with this publication. Well, Brian, it has been great to have you on and to talk about all your new and ongoing work at MIT. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Brian Wilson is the editor-in-chief of the MIT Computational Law Report. If you're interested to learn more about what we talked about today, check out abajournal.com for our show notes and relevant links. Meanwhile, if you like what you heard, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Jason Taché for the ABA Journal. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.